And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back, back for another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here to have another conversation I'm hoping helps your business grow. You know, sometimes when it comes to the category that your business operates in, you might not even know what it is. Uh, you know, at Full Scale, which is my company, we started out as a tech services company and have progressed to tech-enabled services. And then sometimes you end up just building your own category in tech. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And before I introduce today's guest, today's episode of Startup Hustle is powered by FullScale.io. Helping software, hiring software developers is difficult, and FullScale can help you build a software team quickly and affordably and has the platform to help you manage that team. Visit FullScale.io to learn more. With me today, I've got Yoav Vilner. And Yoav is the CEO and founder of Walnut. And the industries they serve, or maybe even the new industries or categories they're creating are related to tech, SaaS, sales, and marketing. You can learn more about his company by going to the show notes and clicking the link for walnut.io. There's also a link for FullScale down there straight out of New York, New York. Yoav, welcome to Startup Hustle. Thanks for having me. It's a great show. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to chatting about this. I always like anything that involves selling or marketing things. So before we get into that, let's start with a little bit of backstory about yourself and Walnut. Um, sure. So for me, uh, this is my third run as a founder. Uh, prior to that, I was a founding member of a tech startup designed to save kids from bullies on social media. Um, and prior to that, I owned a company um, that kind of coined the term tech marketing, growth marketing, and all that that's been widely used today. Um, I helped about 600 startups with their growth before it was cool. Um, and Walnut, lucky for me, Walnut is the fastest thing I've, I've built so far. Well, that and, and you're clearly doing something right because you know, we don't n- normally get too far into this, but $56 million worth of investment to validate that what you're doing is is on to something. Uh, now, we, you know, we mentioned talking about building a new category in tech. Do you consider yourself as having done that in the past or that that's currently what's going on with Walnut? Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and much beyond what we could have imagined. Okay, so, well, tell me why. Well, you know, every startup upon inception, they would say they're building a category, right? When they're talking to prospects, raising funds and bringing on the first founding team and everything. And it makes sense because usually startups would build things that doesn't that don't exist. And um, But then after a year or two, you kind of, you know, you kind of get used to the fact you, you haven't really pioneered a huge category in tech. No one's really giving a crap. And now you have to start selling just like a regular <laughs> company. Um, what, what happened with us was, was kind of was kind of kind of insane. You know, it was we started with seven hundred people on a wait list, including VPs from Fortune five hundred companies, 
um, which literally said, if you, if you guys can fulfill your vision, this is a new category in, in tech and specifically in B2B sales, which is as broken as you can, as you can imagine. Um, and, you know, fast forward, like under two years after, Gartner was releasing reports saying that interactive demos is the next big things. Um, the press, the media, we get 20 or 30 unique press coverage every month based on the category we're developing. So it's no longer just the two founders, you know, claiming it. It's actually something the market is giving back to us. Yeah, an overnight sensation, several years in the making, right? <laughs> exactly. So, so with, with Walnut, and I, you know, I, I mentioned that I love talking about sales and marketing stuff because, look, in any business, nothing really occurs until something gets sold, right? So, sales are the, obviously the driver of your revenue, and and really, in the end, the validation metric that matters at a business because if you don't sell stuff. Uh, well, eventually that well is going to run dry, but uh, I've, and, and I love what you guys are building because Walnut helps with personalized sales demos. Now, why is personalized important? If you can actually speak like, or come close to speaking to the person that you want to sell to, you have a much, much greater chance of making that sale or getting them to pay attention my question is, is how do you go about a, when it comes to the personalization of a sales demo or a process or any of that, how do you go about trying to personalize that and understanding what that viewer, listener, buyer, prospect, client, anything, how do you know what to put in there other than, hey, Yoav, look and listen to what I'm selling here? Like, how do you, how do you figure anything out past that? Right. So first of all, there's a lot of data in the different CRMs that we plug into. But, you know, even, even beyond that, like the, the most basic rule that we have is that no two prospects are alike. So initially, Correct. it's not just about editing text. It's it's, it could be as not even showing the same set of features. If one prospect is from gaming and another prospect is, is from a cyber company, it doesn't make sense for them to see the exact same experience. And this is what this is what have made let's call it B2C sales or consumer sales or whatever you want to call it, has made it um, such, a, such, an in, such an impressive development over the last couple of years, right? Where you, you can just go to Google, type whatever, it gets to your house. You didn't have to talk to an SDR. Um, and, and, and in B2B sales, everything kind of got stuck at a point in history where there's one boring dashboard that you would show to thousands of different prospects from different sizes and backgrounds. Um, and that's exactly where we stepped in. And we said, you know, use our platform, which is as easy as editing a website on Wix. Um, and it's on our cloud, so it won't break during that live call that you have in a couple of minutes. Um, and you can collaborate with your team members and, and everything. And you can customize drag and drop until it fits the exact needs of your prospect. I should probably give a shout out to Wix. They're a regular sponsor of this show. So um, you, you should. Well, you look... You, you look at a company like Wix and they made making designing a website easy, you know, like a drag and drop kind of thing for people that might not have inherently been technically proficient. Now, as a salesperson, I'm rare because I actually have a lot of tech chops and skills. I don't write code, but I, I mean, I, I can get into the weeds and I'm a big automation nut, but I also, uh, uh, 
as a salesperson openly admit on behalf of, of my peers that are in sales, salespeople are usually aren't inherently technical. They're, uh, they're kind of process driven. Uh, does Walnut help with that as well? Meaning like, not just like, so here's the demo, but then what? Oh yeah, it's exactly. And, and the, uh, you know, when we just launched, so the media was like, this is a Wix for sales. Um, and, and they took it because of the codeless approach and empowering salespeople not to need favors from product or R&D. Uh, we're also backed by the CEO of Wix. He's our first angel investor. And so a lot of this really helped the, okay. you know, the press go for that Wix for sales type of uh, positioning, even though we switched far, far away from that where we're a whole platform now. But um, but th this is what we wanted to solve initially. We wanted to remove that friction between salespeople and then product R&D design and anyone backend. So one of the things that I, yeah, I've talked to, I was literally talking to our salespeople at Fullscale about this today was, you know, the, the idea that you have to speak to the benefit that is provided. Feature, no one cares about your features. They care about the benefits of what you're selling. You know, so like in, in the process, uh, let's talk about creating a demo. So what does Walnut do to help? Well, okay, I'm going to back up even more. You'd be shocked at how many business owners and salespeople and sales directors have no clue on how to demonstrate something. So how do you, and, and for those, you can't see the video right now. You know, I was nodding his head with me in Congress because this is a real problem. How do you go about, how do you, because how do you solve that problem? How do you teach someone to understand how to demonstrate the value proposition of their own stuff? Right. That, that's a great question. Um, the way that we look at it. So what, what people um, think as templates for the different demos that you can have, uh, we, we refer to as storylines. And then each storyline is designed for a specific type of prospect. So that process that I mentioned at first, where you replicate your product into your whole product into our environment, and then you can create the demos out of. So you can actually create storylines, and storylines would fit each prospect based on what they need. Um, you could you could just on a just like on a Google Doc, you can collaborate with your team members, and your team leader could say this is the best storyline for our cyber prospect, and etc. Um, so we're kind of throwing a lot of different brick and mortar solutions. Uh, out of the curve, right? So you don't need scripts, you don't need a PowerPoint presentation, you don't need a Loom video, and the list goes on. What do you, what do you think in a, and I know this is a, a really broad question to throw at someone, but what do you think the appropriate length of a product demo should be? Um, when, so, so we're divided into two types of, of demos. There's a live demo, if you go on the Zoom and you would actually demonstrate that interactive product. Mm -hmm. But also there's a there's an interactive demo you can just send via link. And then it's scalable because you can send it to thousands of people at once. Now, we, we haven't seen successful demos run more than a couple of minutes, actually. We, we've yeah. literally seen salespeople kind of eliminate 60 or 70% of the function. So, you know, the, the client doesn't get to ask too many questions. So normally it would be less than 10 minutes. And if you, if you send it via link, obviously it's going to take like one minute, right? Because they're going to play with it a little bit and then reach back to you. Okay. So you, before we hit record, you mentioned that you're also, you also spend some time in Tel Aviv. 
um, as well as New York. Do you have to give any, uh, uh, do you have to give consideration when building a demo to geographic location? Like is selling to people in Tel Aviv or in that region different than selling to someone in New York? Um, everything other is than now, language, other than language. Yeah. Yeah. Everything is now very global and remote, um, and distributed. So, so we haven't seen much barriers in terms of actual country and location and everything. Okay. Yeah. That was just a, kind of, it came to mind and you know, we deal with, with people from all different, you know, countries and I have a lot of employees, all of our, all but a single digit number of our employees are not located in the United States. And we've, we've gained a, a very strong grasp on understanding local culture. <laughs> and that's a, probably more along the lines for having and keeping and retaining employees um, than anything else. So, okay. So when it comes to what, what did you learn from your prior startup ventures that has carried into this one that has been the most valuable? Wow, so so many lessons. Um, when when I when I, when I first when I first an appropriate did, answer could have been hold my beer. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how long do we have? Um, so when I first took on a CEO position, I was 22, and so you can imagine every mistake possible. Um, being being not being sensitive enough with team members, being too sensitive caring too much about the wrong things, not caring about the right things. And, you know, the, again, the list goes on. And then the more that I developed as a founder time and time again, I learned and I learned a couple of really interesting lessons. One of them, it doesn't get more important than your founding team. Like your idea is nice. Your MVP is cool. Um, even your couple of angel investors, you should probably pick them. Um, you know, uh, wisely, but your founding team would literally dictate if you're going to turn your pre-seed startup into a real thing. Um, and you need the best, the best, uh, you know, tech person you can find, the best business person you can find, whatever your, your own background is, just, you know, complement it with the, with the others. But you can say, I have a great idea and I have some investors that I know, so I'm just going to take some random people and this will be a startup company. Um, that, that's probably, and I, and I would say, um, in Walnut's, in Walnut's case, I was very lucky. I was even amazed at the level of people that have ditched their senior positions and have came over to be our first employees, even before we raised our first 6 million seed. Um, and it was during COVID. So people were holding on to their jobs and we were very lucky about that. Yeah, I think one of the things I learned early with this show, I mean, we're so, you know, this will be roughly the 900 plus episode of Startup Hustle, but pretty early in the in the sequence, like in the somewhere in the hundreds, I was out in San Francisco at TechCrunch and I was talking to people that were at different startups and I was asking them, I was like, do you have a hard time recruiting against these tech giants that are around every corner here in San Francisco? And most of the people that I interviewed, if not close to all of them, said, no, not at all, because people don't find a particular level of passion or buy-in in working at Facebook because they don't really inherently get jazzed up about helping people post pictures of what they ate for dinner or something like that. And it really kind of opened my eyes about the, the need 
well, how important it is for so many of your early employees to buy in and, and really kind of be involved with what you're doing. So, you know, as uh, once again with me today, I've got Yoav Vilner and Yoav's the CEO and founder of Walnut. Go to walnut.io. I really like what you're building here. And it's uh, uh, something that I'm going to check out after this recording because I, I love the personalized approach. I do spend a lot of time talking to my team about this because like with what we, we're a small batch sales organization, meaning like we don't serve full, full scale has got just over 40 clients and that's enough for us to have 300 employees. But with that, we, we try to take a personalized approach. I've really had a challenge with a personalized product demo. Um, so you are creating something new. I looked at this. There are some things that, that I found along the way that were kind of like, I want to say like low budget productions, like you could like record there at your desktop and kind of like branch things off or whatever, but they weren't, they weren't very sophisticated. So you are working on creating a new category. Now with that, how difficult was that in the fundraising process? Cause I, I have found that when you're, well, first off, I think that sales and marketing tools, depending on whoever you're talking to as an investor, they either love them or hate them. Some investors are like, yeah, nah, I don't need another marketing platform, you know, or, or whatever. But what kind of, what kind of headwinds did you sail into showing up and being like, we have a new category here? Right. So, so like I said, it was during the first COVID lockdown. VCs were shrinking. Uh, literally, LPs were not um, transferring funds to the VCs and everything totally went crazy. People were losing their jobs and founders were, you know, shutting down. And people told us, this is a crazy time to be, to be going out for a seed round. Are you guys completely insane? Um, but, but again, there was a really strong founder fit, market fit, wait list, 700 people. Everything happened super fast. Uh, we got very, very smart people to back us, including C-levels or founders at companies like uh, Wix and Google and Salesforce and HubSpot and GitHub and more and and overall um, really humbled to be working with the funds that have invested. Um, I think that and, and you know now, now it's now it's a crisis time again. So people listening to the, to this podcast and setting out to raise their seed round are going to encounter the same difficult questions um, that we encountered two years ago, but. I think the best VCs believe that during recessions and, and crisis times, that's when the strongest founders get revealed. That's where the best companies get launched, get built. And so I definitely think they should still go for it. Yeah, I think that there's a lot. You talk about the, the headwinds or the, the general tone and timbre of the media. And, you know, uh, VC funding's drying up. Yeah, I don't think you can compare being being a seed level startup to you know, a lot of that's going to look there is more dry powder in VC bank accounts than ever right now and they're still hungry man they still they still need to invest they still want to find good businesses with great founding teams so build a great business with a great founding team i think that there's also a darwinistic effect that and we saw this in the 2008 range and now maybe again you know, who knows? Time will tell. But if you're not running a sound business, if you're running a business, it's just a cash inferno. Um, well, why would why do people want to dump more money into it? And and I think that eventually uh, there has to be there. 
well, I think we got away from being in love with profitability and growth going hand in hand, not just growing your revenue, but spending $10 to bring one back. Um, who knows? I think, but I think these are healthy, healthy times. Um, so, you know, do you have any recommendations for running a leaner business or what have you, have you even need to needed to consider that right now? Um, I think in the past two months, every founder have gone to zoom with, with their board members and had to listen to the same lecture right? So you have to live, you have to have runway for the next two years. You have to cut expenses. And, and I totally get their perspective, right? Because they've seen this happen before and they know that you can completely get destroyed if you don't run this crisis financially, um, right? Uh, lucky for me, I take every action together with our, you know, VP finance and our advisors and our board. So I don't, I don't make as foolish decisions that I w- as, as I would as a one-man show. Um, but but definitely definitely it's no longer about showing how fast you can grow inefficiently, which is what has happened so far and what have made a lot of companies become unicorn companies. Um, it's about actually um, providing value, having recurring business. Um, there's there's a dozen of very very um, aggressive metrics that founders now need to face in order to be able to raise their next rounds. Who knows, maybe it will change back in a year from now, but it's very clear it's not going to be as, in terms of valuations and everything, it's going, it's not going to be as crazy as, as it used to be. It seems crazy that any business owner needs to be advised to operate within their means. Uh, to me, that just sounds like crazy. You know, like if you think on a personal level, you can't grossly outspend your income businesses and, and governments for that same reason shouldn't be able to do it. Now, if you if you want to save a few dollars on software developers, finding expert software developers doesn't have to be difficult, especially when you visit fullscale.io, where you can build a software team quickly and affordably. Use the Fullscale platform to define your technical needs and then see what available developers, testers, and leaders are ready to join your team. At Fullscale, we have the people, the process process and the platform to help you build an affordable team. Visit fullscale.io to learn more. Um, so when it comes now, let's get, kind of get back to the sales thing. So, so many early stage companies are so obsessed with building a product. It's like they forget to try to sell something along the way. I think that trying to figure out your sales and marketing too late can be a very deadly, deadly mistake. What are some what are some tips that you can give for businesses in early stages when it comes to figuring out how to sell stuff? <laughs> yeah, selling stuff is a is a, is a nice thing to do. Um, and my- you got to do it, like, I, dude. I'm telling you, it shocks me how many people I talk to, and I'm like, "What are you doing for sales and marketing? We're going to figure that out later." Oh man, that's not not a good plan. So an- another nice gig that I had. Um, it was it was voluntarily, so I don't know if it's called a gig, but I was an, a mentor and an <laughs> advisor in a couple of tech accelerators um, by the top mm-hmm. companies, and so I got exposed to a couple of hundreds of startups. And my my usual tip was that um, kind of what you just said, right? You said that people will build a product and technology and get onto sales and marketing later on. That makes zero sense. Your competitors will build their brand long before you do. And they would start selling and they would bring on their first head of sales or even a VP sales before you do. 
And by the time it's too late, you're going to try and get a CMO or VP sales and you're, you're going to make every hiring mistake possible. So from day one, and if, if it's a founding team just based, based on you know, tech people, get someone, like hire someone that's from, from go-to-market side, but you have to start selling, you have to build that, that, that pipeline, you have to build a wait list. Um, you're not going to be able to, especially in this upcoming two years, you're not going to be able to raise funds just based on building a product anymore. So let's talk a little bit more about building and acquiring that sales team. And this is why I love tools like Walnut is, you know, okay, so I, I talk about controlling the narrative a little bit when it comes to sales. Like, here's the things that we really need to focus on. Now, do you think Walnut would help with that as opposed to just like you kind of send your salespeople out and you're hoping they're saying the lines or, or, you know, speaking the, the, talking about the company the way you want it to. I mean, how do you get a control? How do you get control of that? How do you, how is, is something like Walnut the way to do that? Uh, there, there's a lot of interesting use cases for, for Walnut that I've seen. And, and by the way, not, ju- not just from sales, you wouldn't imagine the type of use cases that people have, like we've, we've gotten product teams and product marketing teams, and we've gotten CMOs and we've got even founders before a demo day uh, or founders wanting to showcase okay. to investors. Everyone just wants to have that tiny bit of opportunity to kind of create drag and drop and customize their own product. Um, in, you know, I think that we're, we have a lot of impact on the go-to-market strategy of the, of the companies. Otherwise, we wouldn't have gotten hundreds of customers in two years. I think it's an actual impact on the go-to-market strategy of showcasing your product on the first touch point. Um, embedded it, embedding on your web pages and everything. So it's it's really, really, as far as I see it, this whole demo concept is not just a one-time thing. Um, and we're very lucky enough to be working with great companies on that. So you mentioned having 700 people on your wait list before you had really anything. Uh, how'd you do that? Right, so, so part of my background and to the... You know, it's, it's not a fact that my, our competitors uh, are fans of. Part of my background is obviously the marketing and brand and, 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 and all that. And so we've been considered a very strong brand in B2B sales ever since day one. Um, and it's like, a, it's like a combination of, of a lot of things, of, you know, being mentioned everywhere, of being featured on Product Hunt and being ranked first uh, for three times, of being praised all over the place and... Uh, there is a lot of word of mouth. A lot of influencers talk about us. A lot of um, very, very viral videos we released that have generated millions of views organically. Um, this is all, you know, and these are just tiny pieces of a huge puzzle that I call to building a, a massive brand. Um, and so this was all part of the inception that we had. Um, but honestly, the waitlist started from the validation where we interviewed 70 VP sales. And we asked them about our very non-attractive MVP that we were working on at the time. Um, and they asked to be part of a wait list and it grew from 70 to 700. Can you share a couple of the things that you were looking for when it came, when it came, you talk, I love the, I love the open admission of a not very attractive MVP. So many people believe that if you're waiting till it's pretty and perfect, you've waited too long. What were some of the what were some of the like questions that you asked when it came to getting feedback from your uh, on your MVP? Um, 
I have a tactic for that, which I often share. And I think that the obvious thing to do, right, when you're validating your idea is to go on the call with a prospect, show him your product and ask them if they think it's good. They would, most of them would say, yeah, right, because they're not committing to everything and they're not pulling out their credit cards. And so they would just tell you it's a good idea and you would go on all happy back to your spreadsheet and say, prospects think it's a good idea. What I tend to do is kind of otherwise. I just go on the call with them. I start by asking about their challenges. You know, the sales stack is huge. It's a so-called red ocean. There's a lot of tools. What's your struggles? What's your pains? What, what are you not being able uh, to solve with the existing tools? And we just saw everyone going back again and again to that friction between salespeople and anyone else in the company. And then when we said, so we have this MVP we're building to kind of let the salespeople own the demo, then it really hit them and they wanted to be part of the waitlist. And so I think if you don't really dictate what your idea is on the first, you know, on the first part of the call, then you might get better results later on. I have a golden rule, MVP, or really any, it doesn't even need to be an MVP. I, my rule one is, is this annoying? And if the answer is even maybe, you have to go back and rethink it. Because you can have the greatest product or platform in the world, but if it's, it, well, it won't be the greatest product or platform in the world if parts of it are annoying. But little tiny things will annoy users and make them bounce. And and you know, getting people to admit that is sometimes a challenge. Now, I'm in Kansas City, so here in the Midwest, people are often referred to as, and don't take this the wrong way, New Yorker, that we're we're a little less we're a little less uh, we're nicer. Um, now, I personally maybe have more of a New York attitude because if you want me to tell you exactly what I think, then ask, and I will. Um, but I mean, that's important. And, and honestly, I think that sometimes the pe people look for feedback from the wrong sources. Uh, Matt Watson and I did a 52 part series last year about how to start a tech company. And one of the things we talked about in the MVP phase was going and finding people that you, that you could feel comfortable. were going to tell you the truth about what it is that you've built, not just be nice to you. Um, and they needed to be people that are credible along, along the line with that. Okay, so here you are two years later, $56 million in investment. Uh, what's, what's down the road at Walnut? Um, so we're onboarding lots of customers all the time. We're now growing to be 120 employees um, worldwide, um, building out the platform, just you know, having fun, building a very, very fast-growing startup is, is a mess, but it's fun. Are you willing to share a story of failure? It, fun, interesting, just something that I, we find that people learn a lot more from, from where successful people, it doesn't even need to be with Walnut. I just, I like to ask everyone that. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, we didn't have time to fail yet with Walnut. I don't want to jinx it, but. Um, well, it could even be anything, man. I think yeah. sometimes you, you do things and look back at them and you're like, wow, I can't believe we thought that would work. Right. So um, I would say that if I look at a previous venture I had and I was relocating to from Tel Aviv to New York um, and we were doing so, so well in our Tel Aviv okay. branch. And I was thinking we're going to be a hit in Manhattan as well because this is who we are. And so I moved to Manhattan and I was still in my 20s 
and I just found out people didn't give a crap about me and they didn't know the portfolio companies I had. Um, if, if, you, if, you'd, if you had a marketing company and you didn't own a whole building on some avenue, then you're nothing, uh, which kind of makes sense, right? That's like the culture and it, it's fine. And it was a shock to me that I had to start from scratch and kind of be nobody again. Um, so so I, got, I got a lot of lessons from that about planning and researching and interviewing before literally moving a country. What do you what do you think the most important trait is for a founder to you know like it, what do you, what is the most important trait of a successful founder? You have to filter out the tips that you get. You get a lot of tips from people all the time, um, from investors and from you know other founders and and from clients, and everyone try to kind of tell you how to do things. You have to be very open minded, like. You know, soak soak some 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 wisdom in if you can, but like, don't take everyone's tip. Everyone thinks that they know better, and you have to believe in your own way. Yeah, I always my advice with that is listen for an echo. Like, if you if people keep telling you the same thing over and over, it sounds like an echo. Like, I I'm gonna pay a little more attention to that input then the one-off stuff. Also, I think you have to ask yourself a hard question along the lines of like, if I, if I were to follow this advice, does it bring me revenue or users or keep revenue or users? And if not, it might not be that important because really in the end, that's it. You have to solve the problem of the user, not necessarily the problem of the investor. Um, now with that, I'd like to, you know, you've been around the block a few times. What do you, what's it, what are a few things that, that Walnut does when it comes to user retention? Like how do you reduce your churn or try to keep people in the platform? Cause it's so much easier to keep users you have than go find new ones. Um, right. So we have, you know, your usual customer success and product marketing operations. Well, we try to to um, we try to to make our clients happy. We try to automate a lot of processes um, and kind of activate as much as we can. Uh, we're expanding among organizations kind of organically. Lucky for us, I think that's usually how it is with sales tools. So uh, we're seeing a lot of expansion and um, just you know good old good old uh, customer success operations. I think a lot of that, you know, I'm at your site. And by the way, I noticed after I said it, you actually have a line in here about owning the narrative. So I, we're, we're, we're aligned on that one. But, you know, why that's important is, and can we, I'd like to talk about that for a second, because, you know, one of the things that we talk about, things we struggle a lot with and here on Startup Hustle, and, you know, here I am for my just had the fourth birthday at full scale and almost at 300 employees. And I, I've openly admitted, especially recently, that I've had a very difficult time building. So I'm an excellent salesperson, and that makes it very easy for me to sell, especially to clients, because my clients are CEOs and founders and CTOs and people that I, I may, would consider to be a peer. But I've had a difficult time, you know, matriculate, d- passing that down to other people and, and sales folks. And I feel like I give the list, like, here's the things that you need to talk about. And then I hear we're talking about something completely different. So how do you know, when you talk about owning the narrative or controlling it, well, A, is there a difference? And how do you do that? 
Um, so I connected to points that we, we spoke about. One of them is my background um, in brand. And the other is we let people be storytellers. Um, so a lot of people come over to Walnut because, like you said, it's really, really hard to sell and it's really hard to dictate a narrative um, in a, any other any other method that's been that's been around. Um, so first of all, I think you have to choose that tone of voice. Like for some cases, you have to be very serious. In our case, by the way, you said you're on a website. We we're funny, um, and we don't take ourselves too seriously. <laughs> and if you head over to our YouTube and LinkedIn. You, you would probably share a laugh and, and this is something that salespeople love and they share it around their different groups. Sometimes it spreads like wildfire. Um, we've had one video that people compare to the original uh, um, Dollar Shave Club video where I get a walnut smacked in my head. Um, <laughs> and Walnuts so, are hard, man. You might want to be careful with that. Yeah, and it took, and it took some takes, so it wasn't a good day. Um, but, but what, I'll, what I'll, I'll send you, I'll send you a helmet or something. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think you're onto something there. And I've talked about that to our marketing team as well. I'm like, let's have a little fun with this, you know, like, cause I don't know. I think the world needs another boring sales pitch presentation or at, I, it doesn't, it doesn't quit being boring people that be, be happy to show people who you are, how you do things. And, and, and quit acting like you're perfect all the time because you're not. That's, that's the reason I ask questions about failure on my shows uh, so often is the number one feedback that I've gotten from listeners around the world at this point is that they like the fact that we talk, talk about the stuff we're not good at or the things we failed at. So I've delved in. I said, well, tell me why. And at first I thought people just like looking at the train wreck and then it was, you talk about the echo, the overwhelming response was, well, actually it makes me feel like I'm not a failure because as an entrepreneur, you fail a lot and social media helps us glorify all of our wins or the cool shit we buy with the money we've made, but that's not helpful. People want to know where you've fallen down the pit and try to help them. And speaking of falling down the pit, don't do it when you're trying to hire software engineers. If you need to hire software engineers, testers, or leaders, let full scale help. We have the people and the platform to help you build and manage a team of experts. When you visit fullscale.io, all you need to do is answer a few questions, then let our, tech, our, let our platform match you up with our fully vetted, highly experienced team of software engineers, testers, and leaders. At Fullscale, we specialize in building long-term teams that work only for you. Once again, learn more at fullscale.io. There's a link in the show notes for that. There's also a link to walnut.com. Walnut.io. Yoav, I love what you're building and we're about out of time to talk about that. And that brings us to the Founders Freestyle, which is how I end my episodes. I say my episodes, I'm not the only host of the show. Make sure you tune in weekly to hear what Andrew Morgans and Lauren Conaway have to say. There are a whole lot of uh, Matt Watson episodes coming out. And speaking of episodes in the future, we are about to launch a new series where Matt and I will be discussing the software development life cycle and the steps of it and which what's important, what you need to look at and what you should maybe try to avoid or what might be a time suck. Now back to the founders freestyle, yo, I give all my guests a chance to sum up the episode or it's a freestyle dude. You, we've had people rap, sing, recite poetry, 
um, really I kind of leave it up to you, but what, what would you like to leave with uh, the listeners on the way out? Um, I would say be brave during this upcoming recession. I would say uh, trust your instincts, bring on the best people you can for your first seed uh, team. Um, I would say that try to try to build a category, like try to be the first mover of your market. Um, and sometimes it can work out. Well said, well said for my freestyle. I want to just say that if you're trying to build a sales or marketing team or prospect, keep looking for tools like Walnut. And, uh, you know, we're in a golden age of things. There's people solving problems for all types of stuff. You just got to get out there and look for it. I really like what you're building, Yoav. I, I like the idea of personalizing, customizing, or making it easy for someone to build a sales presentation. If you've never built one, it's a lot harder than you think it could be. I've actually done a test where I've tried to ask, or I've not tried, I've actually asked founders and CEOs to, you know, and in, in, in one breath, tell me, give me your elevator pitch. Tell me why you're great. And they can't do it. And I think that a lot of tools like Walnut are going to help you walk through and figure that out with that. We mentioned earlier in the show that brevity is important. You know, we're in this world of stories and reels where you get 15 to 20 seconds in some cases to get someone's attention. So while you're doing that, lead with the need. Like, why do I want to use you? Like for us at full scale, it's like, are you having a hard time finding developers? Do you need expert developers or something along those lines and get someone's attention in the beginning and you are much more likely to have them listen to the rest of the message. I have a feeling Walnut does a great job of helping you do that. Anyway, Yoav, keep building it. I am, uh, I'm not just saying this folks, I am about to sign up for a trial of walnut.io. I have high hopes that I'm going to have an amazing sales presentation at the end of it. See you next Amen. time, Yoav. Thanks, man. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time. We do it.